I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, an artist and psychoanalyst based in Sweden who works with people internationally, and this is episode 248 of Rendering Unconscious Podcast. Today's episode is a talk I gave on creativity, dreams, and the unconscious for Aquarius Rising Reimagined in December of 2020. You can check out my new book with Carl Abrahamson, We May Need to Call on Our Cosmic Friends. It's the second year of collected postings of our Magic Monday posts from our Patreon. The first book came out in 2021, and we're very happy to have the second collection out now. You can check out the publisher's website, chapar.net, that's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net, or find it on Amazon or any online retailer that you love. You can follow me on social media at rawsin underscore, that's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore, on Twitter and Instagram, and at TikTok at Dr. Vanessa Sinclair 23. Links to everything can be found in the liner notes accompanying this episode and at renderingunconscious.org. As usual, there is a video of this talk up at our YouTube page. Visit Rendering Unconscious Podcast hosted at Chapar Films YouTube page. You can support Rendering Unconscious Podcast and all of my other creative endeavors by visiting our Patreon, patreon.com slash Vanessa23Carl. Thank you so much to everyone in our Patreon community. Your support is hugely appreciated. Hi, everyone. My name is Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and I'm coming to you from Stockholm, Sweden. It's my privilege to be with you all here tonight. This has been such an amazing weekend. I'm so excited to be able to speak to you representing the realm of Pisces, the realm of creativity, dreams, and the unconscious, which are my favorite things. I'm a psychoanalyst, a psychologist, but I'm also a writer, a poet, an artist as well. Um, and I love working with the unconscious and dreams, creativity, fantasy, imagination in all of its forms. So to start out tonight, I want to first of all and foremost thank the organizers of this weekend of events. Christina, Shireen, and Jessica have done such an amazing job. And I want to thank all the presenters and performers that we've seen this weekend. Everyone's been fantastic. I feel like this has been such an uplifting and inspiring weekend and such an amazing time to kind of say goodbye to 2020 and ring in the new year right before this winter solstice, which is so powerful, which is always so powerful, but this one is extra powerful with this conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter in Aquarius. 
So in this time of transition and change and evolution, it's been really amazing to bring all of these artists, mystics, and creative thinkers together uh, for this weekend. And I want to thank everyone in the audience who's been here as well. I feel like everyone's collective energy has really brought something great and really added to this amazing weekend. So thanks everyone for being here. To start my portion of the talk, um, I always like to start with an invocation of sorts. And this is gonna make more sense a little later when we talk about creativity and some of the ways that I um, have found that really allow me to access my creativity. And, and I have tools that I can provide that anyone can do. And that's really kind of the goal of a lot of my work is showing people ways that they can access their dreams and inner creativity um, in a really easy, straightforward way to kind of get you started if you don't already have a dream work practice or already have a creative practice going. So to start, I'm going to read this invocation. Operation Rewrite, Maya, Maya, Illusion, Illusion, Do. Both seen while illustrate that precise confrontation to forget nothing and illustrate that. Indeed, the final across the world blow, spiritual and physical. Come more creative and writers reason why the artistic world can't. It's sacred, play with it, but we, physical, real challenge of our universe. I'll always be a word man. It's no calligraphy for closely. I'm quite sure someone I admire, French prose. He's one of my favorites. Thanks again, I look continues to unfold. Sacrifice ourselves. Stop this cycle in any way. Give me distant ancestors, active and concept of the state and co-electrosexuality structures us with and breaking individual into history. The thrust is precipitated from manufacturers for the subconscious. This, another interest, is that of permutations and that transference tie relationships. And then call me three years, key in day and night. Change her surroundings too. It's no calligraphy for closely. I'm quite sure a spiral, a serpent's electricity and elementals. Atonal precedes the music lyrics, I believe. When cling to life, our passioned flower. Representation of my spiritual and more. Why couldn't identity in and into which to become the moments Friends, cut up techniques, brought to land of thee, the goal, 
Be the true self. Her is situated in and matter. Thee by the passerby. Few know the clients become a master of yours. No fewer than a hundred. It seems to work more where those who are structured, us with Abraxas is. Why am I here? I am here because you are here. And let me quote to you, young officer, this phrase. No two minds ever come together without thereby creating a third invisible, intangible force which may be likened to a third mind. Who is the third person that walks beside you? So that invocation was created using cut-ups, which I'm going to explain a bit later. And that one in particular, I made with my friend and creative partner, Caitlin Foisey, who is actually performing the closing ritual for this weekend of events. So you will meet her very soon if you haven't already. But to start out this talk, I wanted to talk about dreams to begin with. And in order to introduce you a little bit to my way and different ways of thinking about dreams, I thought I would talk about this event that I used to facilitate for years in New York, where I lived for about a decade before I came here to Stockholm. So the, the event was called the Dream Over, and it was at the Rubin Museum of Art, which was an art museum in Manhattan that was dedicated to art of the Himalayas. Um, specifically mostly Tibetan Buddhist art, but they also had artifacts from other cultures and spiritual practices at the museum. And the events coordinator that came on probably about 10 years ago now or so, her name was Don Eshelman. And her goal in becoming the events coordinator was to really make the museum a hub for culture in New York City. And she had the specific event in mind uh, called the dream over. And what she wanted was for people to be able to sleep in the museum overnight under an artifact. And of course, all of these artifacts from these spiritual practices are spiritual, magical items. And a lot of people like in New York and other places in the West, for example, they go to museums and they think of these things as art pieces or relics or artifacts. They're not really thinking of them as magical or spiritual pieces a lot of the time. And she really wanted to bring that back. And she did an amazing job with that. And the way I got involved, um, as I said, I'm a psychoanalyst and a psychologist. And when I was in psychoanalytic training at New York Psychoanalytic Institute, the Rubens um, were benefactors of the Psychoanalytic Institute that I went to. I talked about this a little bit. I recently had Shireen on my podcast, Rendering Unconscious, and I talked about this a little bit with her. And if you haven't listened to that discussion, that's something that you can listen to after this weekend of events to kind of keep the discussion going, because that's a great talk with Shireen as well. Um, but to go into more depth here about what we actually did at the Rubin Museum, um, they came to our psychoanalytic institute and we had like a dream resource study center where we would research dream work. 
And so we decided to work with the um, curator at the Rubin Museum to facilitate this dream over event. So guests were invited. It sold out every year immediately um, because there was limited seats, but I'd say there was about a hundred sleeping places that people could have in the museum. So we had about a hundred guests or so, and um, they would get their ticket and they would be sent a questionnaire by the docents where the docents asked them specific questions about their life. You know, any dreams that they had that were maybe recurring dreams or specific themes that came to mind, um, colors that resonated with them, any specific colors that they really felt strongly about or resonant with, and any sorts of um, major life events that had a strong impact on their lives, whether they'd be something really powerful in a positive way or something traumatic, anything that really impacted their life and like really um, had meaning for them. So the docent sent all of the dream over guests this questionnaire. And then based on what the guests replied in their answers, the docents chose a piece of artwork or an artifact for them to sleep under. So every artifact was specifically chosen for each guest um, based on their answers. And that made it very, very special. And when the guests arrived the day of the dream over, um, they were all taken to their piece of artwork and they were able to sit with it for a while. Um, and the docents read them a bedtime story. So the docents also not only chose the piece of artwork for the dreamer to dream beneath, but then they also chose a bedtime story, which was usually, you know, a lot of these artifacts were specific deities, or bodhisattvas, or, you know, the, the wheel of life, the wheel of samsara. There was different um, artifacts that had specific meanings or stories or mythologies already tied to them. And the docents would kind of weave that mythology or history into the bedtime story that they would tell to the dreamer. Um, so that was really amazing as well. And then my job was to collect a bunch of other psychoanalysts in training and psychologists. And we would also sleep over in the museum, but we all slept together in the kind of auditorium of the museum as one group. And before everyone went to sleep that night, um, uh, me or a different psychoanalyst um, would give a talk about psychoanalytic theories around dream work um, and ways of thinking psychoanalytically about dreams. And then we also had a Lama come as a guest and he would speak about the Tibetan Buddhist way of thinking about dreaming. And the great thing about that was to see these different perspectives because from a psychoanalytic perspective, um, let's say specifically Freudian to start with. Um, first of all, I'll tell you a little bit about how Freud started. And he actually, basically the entire field of psychoanalysis began by Freud analyzing his own dreams. So his first book that was his first major psychoanalytic work was called The Interpretation of Dreams. And it was a book where he wrote detailed accounts of his own dreams and then his own associations to his dreams. So trying to pick apart all the different 
um, people or symbols or aspects of the dream and where they might have come from either within his own past, uh, his own personal past or his own personal history, or also um, through what we call day residue, which, you know, some parts of our dreams might be pieces or fragments of things that happened in our day, the day before or in the recent days before. And you can often find those themes. The way I like to think of dreams is that um, something happens in your day-to-day life that um, kind of triggers or touches a part of something that has happened in your past and kind of brings it up to the surface for another look, basically. And so that's why certain things may come up at certain times. You know, if we've ever had um, something happen that was really powerful and but similar to something that had happened that was equally powerful from our past we might start having memories of that previous event come up at that time but it could also be something not particularly um, noticeable in your day-to-day life but still has a resonance with something from your past and might bring up that memory and something that you had forgot about a long time ago and don't don't feel like was very meaningful at all but maybe it did have some meaning that you weren't really aware of at the time or maybe something that didn't seem really important back then might have new meaning in your life now as you've grown older so things like that are always interesting to think about Um, and then of course with Jung, Jung brought in the collective unconscious and that we're not just drawing from our own personal unconscious but that we all have a collective history together as humanity, which of course we do. And so things that could be brought up could be not only from our own personal history, but could be from an even deeper collective history of mankind. Um, And then the way that the Lama described the dream work was um, he described it as a practice of yoga where they actually think about it as trying to become lucid dreamers. So they have a practice actually where when they go into the dream states, they have certain meditations that they would do before going to sleep each night that through these practices and meditations, they learn to be able to realize that they are dreaming while they are dreaming and are therefore able to kind of wake themselves up Um, while they're in the midst of dreaming. So not wake themselves up out of the dream, but become aware. They can grow an awareness of themselves dreaming while they are dreaming and therefore can start becoming um, more agent in their dreams, like having more agency over where the dreams are going and start directing the dreams and the dream work rather than it just being like kind of a flood of random images or powerful associated images from your past that are just coming at you and communicating something to you that you don't feel in control of, um, they had a very different idea where you could actually become in control of your dreams while you were in the dream work through meditation and practice and become uh, a lucid dreamer where you start guiding your dreams and your dream work more intentionally. So to me, that is extremely fascinating. Um, I have had periods of my life where I've been able to lucid dream more often than others. Um, And for me, it really fluctuates. But of course, we all also have very different ways of dreaming and also different um, dream recall. For me, for example, I've always been 
a very vivid dreamer. And I've always remembered my dreams upon waking, not all of them, of course, there's so much that goes on in our minds each night. But usually every day when I wake up, I have um, fragments of dreams or my most recent dream fresh in my mind. And usually if I write it down, not even necessarily first thing in the morning, it usually kind of sits with me most of the day. Um, and I'm very fortunate in that respect that I'm able to access my dreams pretty easily and readily in that way. It could also be because I have had a dream practice where I do write down my dreams most days. I uh, can't say every day. Uh, I always try to tell people there's all these things that we would love to do every day. I would love to go for a walk and do yoga and do my breathing practices and meditate and write down my dreams and work with my dreams and make some art every day. But of course, uh, we can't have time for everything every day. But what I like to help people to think about is just try to get one of those things at least done every day, like do something, do some meditating or do some yoga, or do some dream work or something creative. But I definitely encourage everyone to integrate these kinds of spaces and work more into our day to day lives, even just a little bit, like I said, just one thing at a time. Uh, if we try to take make too many changes all at once, often it kind of backfires and becomes overwhelming. And we kind of revert back to old patterns and habits that don't include any of those things that we're trying to integrate for our health and well-being. So if you just try to integrate a little bit at a time, it tends to work a lot better. Um, right now with the pandemic, I have myself on this sort of like week schedule where I try to get all of these things I like to do done at least once a week. So I try to do like self-care. I make sure I get outside, even though Stockholm is really dark and rainy right now. Um, I try to make sure I go outside for a walk, a long walk, like for an hour and a half, at least once a week. I usually do it more than that, but I want to make sure I do it at least once a week. I make sure I get some yoga practice in at least once a week, some exercise with weights at least once a week. I do do breathing exercises every day. And that's just a way that I found to manage uh, my physical and mental health. Um, it just really helps to balance me to do breathing practices. So those I do almost every day. I can't say every day. Um, and then creative and artistic practices and dream work. I try to make sure that I integrate that in at least weekly as well. But I do do that more than once a week as well. So try to work with yourself and you know, these things also might change over time. Sometimes you might be able to do things daily and sometimes you might not. But I think the key is to not beat yourself up. People get so mad at themselves or feel guilty or ashamed that they're not able to you know, do all the things that we want to do. But uh, the key is to not be upset with ourselves. And sometimes it's helpful to think of ourselves as we would think of a friend, like, would you be mad at your friend if they weren't able to keep up with all of these practices every day? No, of course not. So why are you mad at yourself? You know, we have to take it a little bit easier with ourselves, I think, in a lot of regards, and not get so uh, down on ourselves. So anyway, um, at the dream over, I'll go back to that and talking about the Lama and the lucid dreaming. Basically, what would happen that evening was that, you know, I or another psychoanalyst would talk a little bit about um, these psychoanalytic points of views with dreams and give some hints. Um, 
So some things that you can look for when you are trying to remember your dreams or have dream recall. First of all, when you lay down to go to sleep that night, it does help to set the intention, like I'm going to remember my dreams. And always when setting intentions, I like to think of this not saying I want to, but say you will or you are, or you have, like you have already. Uh, I remember my dreams, you know. You could say it in the present tense, or I remembered my dreams, um, rather than saying you want to. Say it in a way that it's already happened or that it is happening now. Um, but set that sort of intention before you go to sleep for remembering your dreams. Maybe if you don't already have a journal next to you with a pen, a little notepad. At the Dream Over event, we would provide everyone with a little notepad and a pen or pencil so that they could easily write down any notes if they woke up in the middle of the night, um, write down any notes about their dreams. And a lot of people there did wake up a lot during the night or even weren't able to sleep very deeply at all because they were sleeping a lot on sleeping bags on the floor um, since they were in a museum, not home in their comfortable bed. But that actually can sometimes help people to remember their dreams as their sleep isn't as deep. And so they're kind of sleeping more closely to the surface, so, so to speak. Uh, so some people found that helpful. Other people really need that deep sleep to be able to remember their dreams and weren't able to remember their dreams. So the other thing is to not be disappointed if you don't remember your dreams that day um, because it's going to happen. Sometimes we just don't. And um, we don't want to beat ourselves up about or get too upset about that either. You can also, even if you are setting an intention when you go to sleep, to remember your dreams, even if you don't remember dreams when you wake up, you could still write about um, how you slept, like the physical aspects of like how you slept, what it was like falling asleep, if you were able to stay asleep, the way your sleep was, what it was like. You could write down things like that and just get yourself into the practice of writing something down about your night or about your sleep until you are able to remember parts or fragments of dreams. And another thing to remember is, you know, you don't have to remember the whole dream. One of the great things about the unconscious is that everything is connected, just like life. Everything is connected in our unconscious, um, both individually and collectively. So if you can even grab just the tiniest little fragment of a dream, like a color, like I remember someone was wearing a red dress. Um, I actually wore this dress today because last night it was in my dream. I was wearing this dress in my dream last night. And I said, well, then I'll wear that dress for the top today. Um, things like that I love to integrate into my life to kind of bring my dream and waking life together a bit more. But even if you can just remember a tiny fragment like that, a person, a name, anything, even just the feeling or like the sense, we also ha often have that sense of, having things be on the tip of our tongue. That's really common when trying to remember dreams. And it's because um, what's called our psychic sensor is trying to keep this unconscious material out of our waking mind. Because the way that our minds have developed is that you know we have to repress a lot of material in order to function in our day-to-day -day lives. Because our, our minds are actually so perceptive and so expansive that if we were aware of everything 
that our senses and our minds were aware of all the time, I, I, I mean, I don't even think we'd be able to move around. <laughs> we would be so overwhelmed by this input of sensations. Because if you think about it, you know, just think about our eyes and our senses. You know, we're constantly feeling temperature, feeling things around us on our skin, feeling the weight of our body. You know, our minds, our brains, our body is aware of all these different sensations happening inside our body. And if we were aware of that, plus all of the sensations coming at us from the outside. I mean, they say like, for example, when we're riding a bike down a street, you know, we're just riding our bike down the street, focusing on the road in front of us. But our mind, our brain is picking up all of these things all around us in our peripheral vision. And like they say that we can see the house numbers, for example, the apartment numbers, the street numbers, all the way down, up and down the street. We see all of that, even though our conscious mind isn't looking at that. So the difference between what we're consciously aware of um, which is what Freud called our ego, and that part of us that we identify as ourself, because that's the part that we're consciously with all day, day in and day out, is a very, very small part of ourself. And our actual self, our unconscious, is aware of so much more, not only in our immediate surroundings, but also in our memory and our past. I mean, all of the things that have happened to us in our lives are stored in there and we don't have access to them normally in our day-to-day lives but when we're dreaming a lot of that information will come up and it usually if there's anything specifically that we had repressed that we hadn't dealt with that kind of wants to be looked at again or maybe is a sore spot or something that hurts a little bit um, that feels that we haven't addressed it enough it'll want to come up to the surface. I like to think about it, you know, don't think about our conscious and unconscious selves as different. A lot of times our, our unconscious self or what some people call our shadow self, a lot of times it can feel very foreign to us because it's not been integrated as a part of our waking life or our day-to-day kind of ego self that we're used to Uh, identifying with and a lot of times it can feel very foreign and that can feel scary to people but it's us it's all us and so don't think of it as like this other person with this other part of yourself just think of it as yourself communicating with yourself Um, and our unconscious is is ourself uh, just as much as our conscious self is And when things come up, either in our day-to-day life or uh, as memories or as fantasies or in our dream life, um, they're coming up for a reason. So instead of thinking, oh, that was weird and like not paying attention to it, think about like, hmm, why is that coming up now? What does that mean? Um, And even if you can't find like a rational narrative meaning, just think, what does it remind me of? Like what other times in my life have felt similar or, or, you know, what other people have felt similar? Why am I thinking about that person now? I haven't thought about them in 10 years or 20 years. Why might I be thinking about them now? Is there someone in my life, my present life that might have a similar dynamic as them that might remind me of them for some reason? Or am I entering into a relationship that's similar, feels similar to the relationship I had with that person? in my past. 
Um, another thing that Jung added, which I think is really wonderful, and I love to use all of these kinds of different ways of thinking about dreams, is Jung would say when you're looking at different people in your dream, not to think of them as those specific people, um, as external to yourself, but actually think about, you know, who does that person represent as an aspect of myself? You know, all of these different people might represent different aspects of myself that either I'm aware of or not aware of or aspects that I would like to have integrated into myself. I'd like to be more like that person or that person brings this part of me out. Um, so you could think about people, for example, people that pop up in your dreams as maybe those specific people and why that person's coming up now. But you can also think about them as what aspect of yourself does that person resonate with or represent or represent as a symbol in your life. So that's another thing that you can think about when thinking about dreams. Things to look for in dreams that are usually um, specific memories coming to the surface. Any numbers that come up in dreams. Numbers are usually pretty specific and resonant. Um, sometimes they're phone numbers, old address, or just the number that resonates. Some numbers feel magical and have specific significance for you. And it might have personal significance or it might have numerological significance. You could look up numerological aspects of that number or like Shireen has shown me to do so many times, which I really love, what tarot card does that number correspond with? Maybe you're going through that kind of phase right now. So you can think of things like that. Um, any sorts of colors, colors that resonate with you. You can think about those different kinds of colors in the dream, what, how that color makes you feel or a time that that color might have had an impact of your life or an object that you saw that was that color and what that might mean. Or you can look up online, like what planets might this color be associated with or you know, what kind of herbs or flowers or healing principles might this color have? Um, you know, there's color healing and sound healing. You can think of uh, the principles of those in relation to those kinds of sounds or colors that come up in your dreams. So things like that. You always want to think about dreams when you're retelling yourself the dreams, say when you're writing them down in the morning. It's always helpful to write about them in the present tense. Um, as if you are in the dream right now. So don't write, don't write about it as it already happened, but write about the dream as it's happening so you can experience yourself in that dream again and really get the physical sensations. How do I feel? You know, when has this feeling, when have I felt this way before, had this kind of sensation um, emotionally, the emotional intensity uh, a lot of times dreams will come up, you know, there might be a certain scene that you're in, um, in the dream, but the feeling of the dream um, might be very intense. And it might not necessarily go with what's actually happening in that scene. Like the scene might have been totally invented for the dream, um, but the feeling of the dream might be very real. Because sometimes, especially when we're younger children, if we have these really intense experiences that have these really intense feelings associated with them, whether it's something fearful or scary or 
uh, stressful, anxiety provoking, or even something like really happy, but we don't really understand anything that could kind of really overwhelm us um, might get split off a little bit when we're children because we don't really understand how to deal with it fully. Then we don't really have all of the uh, coping mechanisms or skills in place to kind of integrate all of these feelings, really intense sensations when we're younger. Um, so some of those intense old feelings might be coming up now. And you can think about, when have I felt this way before? What, what, when did this feeling feel similar to another time I felt this way? And try to integrate that feeling a little bit more and think about it. Because something that might have been difficult to integrate when we're young might be really simple, actually, to integrate when we're older and we're a more fully formed human with more resources internally and externally, more coping skills um, at our fingertips. So you can think about those kinds of intense feelings that come up in dreams as old memories or sensations um, that your mind is trying to integrate with your present day. Um, you can also think about intense colors, like I said, intense um, darks and lights. Sometimes you might have a really white light or something really dark, pitch, pitch dark um, in the dream. So you can focus on that and think about what that, where that's coming from or where that might symbolize anything that has a serious intensity like that. Um, another thing you can think of is textures, which some people don't think about different textures, especially also when you're younger, you know, you might remember the feeling of that dress, what that felt like, or a pillowcase you had, or a blanket you had when you were a child, or, or a doll. Everyone has what they call a transitional object when we're really young and we're kind of uh, weaning ourselves off of our dependence, total dependence on our mother, and kind of uh, starting to form more attachments to things around us in the world. Uh, you see children carry around a blanket or a teddy bear or a doll that they're very attached to. And often the child will keep that doll, you know, until it's falling apart and its eyes have come out and its fur has fallen off and or the blanket is just like a little shred piece of a blanket and not even a blanket anymore and they will get so upset if you wash it because they're also attached to the smell um, the smell and the texture and the feeling of that object so those kinds of textures and sensations are really important and you can look for that in dreams or smells you can think about smells that come up in dreams uh, any of the senses being engaged in a dream and if you find yourself in a dream scene when you're either in the dream or recollecting the dream, really look around and see what's happening around you, what's going on in the world around you in that dream. Um, another thing you could look for is movements in the dream. You know, I've heard people talk about their dreams and talk about crawling in the dream or climbing through a window or just doing a certain movement. I've done yoga poses in my dreams before. Um, so focusing on those kinds of physical movements that you're doing in your dreams and what that might represent or when that might have happened before. Um, and then dreams, as you all know, I'm sure have experienced, they tend to change scenes really suddenly um, with no like rational reason. And so when you're narrating the dream, a lot of times what we do is we try to take all these fragments or these scenes from the dream that are really disjointed and like 
right now we're in a kitchen and all of a sudden we're in a cave and now we're in a forest and now we're in our house and now we're at our old school and now we're in our childhood home and it's just you know it just flashes from one thing to the next and that's because the dreams are just you know associating uh, places or people or times with one another and kind of moving from one association to the next in this kind of chain Um, but what we do in our waking rational mind is we try to make sense of it and we try to tell a story oh I was here and then I was here and we try to figure out why these things made sense together Um, and that's a great thing to do but you also don't have to necessarily do that you can just kind of take each scene or each person or each object really on its own because um, every single one of the things in the dream will have a multitude of meanings in psychoanalysis we call these things displacement and condensation. So what you're looking for are displacements and condensations in your dream. And every object in your dream is actually usually a condensation of a multitude of objects or scenes or sensations in your life. So, you know, um, for example, say the other night I had a dream with Alexander Skarsgård in it. He's like my go-to Swedish symbol like (laughs) anytime I dream of a Swedish person it's just like him Um, but also like maybe he's a a conglomeration of like oh I saw him on a tv show the other day and then maybe he represents something about my husband who is Swedish or maybe he represents something about like a childhood friend that I had who was tall and blonde Uh, or maybe my father my father was tall and blonde when he was young Um, So maybe that this person that is in the dream isn't really Alexander Skarsgård, for example, but really um, maybe is a combination of all these different people that are important to me in my life. And they've all come together in this one kind of symbol of this person who's actually not as important to me and Therefore, is that's why he's actually allowed to appear in the dream, because what our psychic sensor does is it actually decides what material is allowed to come up from our unconscious mind and come into our conscious mind. So if something is too intense or too painful or too um, charged with like psychic energy, the psychic sensor says, no, that's staying down here. But if our mind can kind of mask that thing that is too intense for us to deal with, um, if it can mask it and cloak it in something that's a little less intense for us, then then it'll kind of pass through the psychic sensor. The psychic sensor will either not catch it or will allow it. It'll be like, okay, like, no, I'm not going to allow this memory that you had with this tall blonde boy, you know, when you were 15 or whatever to come up or this memory of your dad, or this feeling about your father, or whatever, to come up to the surface, because it's a little too intense right now. But sure, we can have Alexander Skarsgård, and he can represent all of these people for you. Um, And he can be in the dream instead, because I don't really have an attachment to that person. Um, So that's called displacement. That's, That's an actual example of both condensation, where all these different figures from my past life have been condensed into this one figure of this person, but also displaced because it went from 
being people in my real life and just place under this person who's just a symbol or someone that's kind of in the broader cultural knowledge they don't have a real attachment to so it's been displaced onto him and then he's allowed to come and appear in the dream whereas um, these people who really were in my life are not not able to get through the psychic sensor so that's an example of how that can work uh, from my own life and yeah i think that's a good group of different things of course like i said numbers um any names anything like that um if we go back to the dream over at the rubin what would happen there also is that because these pieces these artifacts are from spiritual practices religious practices um, a lot of them were of deities bodhisattvas holy people um, different monks or leaders spiritual leaders and sometimes what would happen to the dreamers that were there was that the um, guide or spirit or deity would actually come down and give them a message so that's another thing that can happen and that wouldn't most psychoanalysts wouldn't say so but of course that's another way that um, dreams can be vehicles they can be vehicles for messages um, from kind of these sorts of higher powers or, you know, from our higher self to ourself or um, from ancestors. You know, that's another thing we can think about is um, our ancestors. And they, they also, that's another great thing to think about when you think about the realm of the unconscious. Pisces um, is our ancestors and working with our ancestors. And they can also often come to us through dreams, whether we've met these people specifically or not. Um, that's a way that kind of our ancestral heritage can communicate with us. And ancestors, um, you can think about ancestors as being blood ancestors, which are like the ancestors of your actual genetic lineage. Um, but you can also think about uh, adopted ancestors. And adopted ancestors could be anyone that's been like spiritually or creatively or just uh, meaningful for you in your life. Um, a lot of artists have other artists that they look to or looked up to um, that influenced their work, any musicians, um, poets, anything like that. And of course, they could be spiritual leaders, uh, different deities. Um, all of these things can be kind of ancestors or mentors for us and can also come to us through dreams and dream work. So that's important to think about as well. And basically, um, at the dream over at the Rubin, what we would do is um, after the Lama and I or the other psychoanalyst gave a talk about these kind of different ideas about dream work and things um, that may come up in dreams or different ways to help remember dreams, then the Lama would lead everyone in the audience in a meditation and everyone would have a great meditation before they went off to sleep. And then the docents would kind of leave everyone back to their spaces and everyone would go to sleep and dream underneath these artifacts or pieces of artwork. And then me and the dream gatherers, we called ourselves, um, we would go to the auditorium and help kind of clean up. And then we would all sleep there on yoga mats and pillows. Um, so sleep very lightly <laughs> on, on the stage overnight. And then around five in the morning, we would wake up and have a little breakfast. 
Um, they had, of course, the cafe at the museum, and the, they they were so wonderful at the Rubin Museum. If you're ever in New York City, you really you have to go there. It's a it's such a fantastic place, and Manhattan is so bustling and busy and kind of hectic all the time. And the second you walk into the Rubin Museum, it's just like complete stillness. I mean, it's such an oasis in the middle of that city. It's incredible. So I highly recommend going there if you're ever in New York, whenever travel happens again. Um, but we they would leave the cafe open all night called the Night Owl Cafe for anyone who couldn't sleep or, you know, like to stay up a little later than when everyone went to sleep, which I think was around 10 or 11. Um, and they had like cookies and snacks and tea. And people could go there and read or write or talk to other guests um, in the middle of the night if they wanted. So we, we woke up as the dream gatherers around five in the morning and had a little bit of coffee or tea and some uh, snacks for breakfast. And then basically uh, I had assigned a few of each of us to each floor in the museum. So there were five floors of the museum and um, we would walk around. The museum was also situated um, around a central circular stairway. And um, we would walk around the, the museum because it was circular. We'd walk around the different floors. Um, and while people were going to sleep the night before, they also would have some beautiful musician, like a sitar player or something similar, play this like beautiful music for everyone before they would go to sleep, while they were going to sleep after the meditation. And then us dream gatherers would get up and we would start walking around circularly around the different floors we were assigned to and see if anyone was awake, if anyone was dreaming, um, if anyone seemed to be stirring easily. And we would start gathering the dreams. We would just go up to people and ask them, you know, how are you? How was your night? Do you remember any parts of your dreams? And they would talk to us about their experience of the night. And if they did remember any of their dreams, a lot of people did, but of course some people didn't. But if not, then we would talk to them about you know, what their experience was like sleeping in a museum. You know, that in itself was pretty amazing. Um, so that would take a, a while, a couple of hours. And then after we, we'd collected everybody's dreams, then everyone would have breakfast. But then after the breakfast, um, we would meet in process groups where each floor was led by a different psycho, psychologist or psychoanalyst. Um, and we would have a process group where people would process the experience of what it was like sleeping in the museum, what their dreams would like if they wanted to share, um, they could talk about it there. And one of the things that came up in the process group one year when I was leading it that I wanted to share with you all is that uh, I mentioned um, that I really think that we need to make it so that our day-to-day -day lives and our dream lives are kind of more similar. Of course, they're not going to be the same, but we want to like bring them more in line so that they don't feel like our dream life doesn't feel so foreign to us as, as it does to our waking mind. And one of the guests said, but I don't, I don't want to make my dream life more like my waking life. And that is not what I meant at all. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure that's clear. I don't, 
think that people should rationalize their dream lives kind of away and have our ego take over more with its rational way of thinking. But instead, I think it would be great for our waking lives to be a little bit more surreal because I think in actuality, life is pretty surreal. And especially, you know, if you follow Jung and synchronicities, I mean, there are synchronicities happening in our lives all the time. And if you're in tune to that and aware of that and looking for that, looking for synchronicities, you know, you find these moments of meaning in your life all the time. And some people get scared and they find it a little strange. But I think that's only because um, some of our cultures, uh, some cultural perspectives don't allow for synchronicities. You know, we've been taught, say, in the U.S. where I'm from, um, you know, we've been taught not to pay attention to those things. And that if you do pay attention to those things, that's a sign of psychosis. And you're like, you know, going down this slippery slope towards like a chronic mental illness. And that's not the case at all. And of course, a lot of other cultures do not think that way. A lot of indigenous practices do not think that way. Um, and I think a more holistic, animistic um, way of thinking that allows for synchronicities, allows for communication from the outside. You know, the world around us is communicating with us. This is not a one-way street. We're not the only ones communicating outward. You know, communication is coming from inside of us to our conscious selves, to our egos, from our unconscious. Communication is coming from the collective, the collective unconscious and the collective uh, society. Communication is coming to us from the natural world, from the earth, um, from the animals, from nature. And communication is coming to us from the stars, you know, from the universe, for, through astrology. And the fact that humans have devised these different ways that are thousands of years old to understand this communication is fantastic and amazing. And we should use all of those tools and resources. Um, so that's what I think. And I think that um, instead of being frightened when we notice these kinds of communications or synchronicities, we should feel like I've learned to feel that makes me feel like we're on the right track, you know, like, oh, okay. Even if things might seem uncertain now, like especially now with the pandemic, there's been a lot of uncertainty and there's been a lot of death and it's been hard for a lot of people, for most of us actually, um, you know, seeing these synchronicities and the numerology and paying attention to the astrology and trying to understand the bigger picture and the bigger work at play um, really can help and provide comfort and security and um, understand kind of our place in the world better. So I think those are all great things. And I think those are all tools that should be absolutely utilized in our day-to-day -day life. And um, one thing I wanted to talk about now that we've talked about kind of dreams intensively is integrating this kind of work with dreams um, and what there's a psychoanalyst from Britain called uh, Donald Winnicott, and he talked about psychoanalysis, um, creative spaces, the making of art and uh, creativity, dream work, and children in the act of playing. He called all of these things transitional spaces. And I really think that as adults, we need to integrate more of these transitional 
spaces and transitional actions in our day-to-day lives. Um, because of course, children are encouraged to play, um, play and use their imagination and act out fantasies and act out possibilities through these spaces of play um, and art and creativity and imagination. But as adults, we're encouraged um, not to do that so much anymore to focus on work and um, not to have so much time for ourselves as, um, as play. So I think for us adults to reintegrate time for play and imagination and creativity um, is really important. And you can do that through writing, through making art, through psychoanalysis. Um, Another thing that's happened in the field of psychoanalysis recently with the pandemic is that a lot of psychoanalysts are now practicing remotely like this. Um, instead of just face-to-face in offices because of the pandemic and people staying at home. And what I think this has done is really great, actually, because now you don't necessarily have to leave your house to go speak to a psychoanalyst. You can talk to psychoanalysts from the comfort of your own home. And that can be really helpful for people who don't have an easy time leaving their home for whatever reason, whether it's difference in ability or they have small children or people that work from home already or freelancers or people that live remotely or live somewhere rurally where they don't necessarily have a psychoanalyst in their town. Um, This can allow access to psychoanalysis for people no matter where they are, where they live. And I think that's going to be really revolutionary actually in the long term in the field. So, you know, if you've been thinking about doing this kind of talk therapy, psychoanalysis, um, but haven't done it, this could actually be a really great time to do something like that because um, you are able to see an analyst now from your own home, which is amazing. Um, And it's actually now becoming quite the norm in the field because of the pandemic. And I think, you know, even when people do start going back to their offices and seeing people in person again, a, a lot of psychoanalysts that I know are going to continue to have this be part of their practice where they see people remotely. So that's great. You can also do kind of your own self-analysis, which is actually what Freud did. Like I told you in the beginning, he started the field by analyzing his dreams, analyzing himself. And one of the ways he analyzed himself, it always helps to be talking to another person, but he basically wrote letters to one of his mentors and friends and wrote all of his ideas and thoughts and things he was learning about himself through analyzing his dreams, he would write these to Wilhelm Fleece. Um, and through this letter writing is kind of how he started his own self-analysis by you know, talking about his experience of himself and what he was learning about himself through his dreams to another person. So writing letters like that can help whether you actually write them to another person or you could just write it as if you are speaking to someone, like have someone in mind that you feel would be a good mentor for you and just write as if you are talking to them, whether or not you actually show them the letters or not. You could do something like that or something I like to do because um, I've been doing my own self-analysis for a while now. I just used my uh, phone and used the recording voice app on my phone and kind of talk through the psychoanalytic process since I'm so familiar with it, um, having been doing this for how many years now, almost 20 years. 
15 years <laughs> since I've been doing this for a long time now. Um, yeah, I just talk to the voice recorder in my own phone and kind of do my own self-analytic work that way, talk about my dream and let myself associate. And one of the great things about just speaking freely in that way is that, you know, just let yourself, people often apologize for going off on a tangent or like having something, their thoughts lead them in some way that wasn't the way they intended. But that's great. We love that in psychoanalysis. Like go off on those tangents because they're all leading somewhere and don't feel like they're um, something random or something misdirected or something that's not important because it's all important and it's all information. Um, so feel free to associate and go on tangents. I think, I think we need more of that, actually. I think that, that helps us get out of our kind of rational, narrow-minded way of thinking and more into our unconscious way of thinking, which is, you know, it's got all these associations. Freud, I like to think of our unconscious as kind of like a web um, Freud called these points where things connect nodal points. Um, so a dream could be connecting like a nodal point um, or these kinds of places where I described like the condensation happening where all these different figures from your life kind of condense into this one similar characteristic that comes up that could be a nodal point. But there's so many webs and intersections happening in our unconscious and everything is connected to everything else through these kind of web of associations. Um, people call them now signifiers, um, the sliding of metonymy and metaphor. Met metaphor is, is another way of thinking about condensation and metonymy is another way of thinking about displacement. So the sliding of metonymy and the condensation of metaphor creates all these different kinds of scenes or symbols in our mind, but they're all connected. And so if you can just access one, it, it can lead you to all sorts of other places in your mind. And, you know, think of it as kind of a trip or an adventure, you know, go off on this tangent with yourself and see where it leads because you might learn something really interesting or fun about yourself. And it's all, it's all information. It's all part of the learning process. So that can be really fun as well. And then as far as creativity, the way um, I have found that it is so simple to access your creativity uh, that anyone can do. And an example of, of one was what I read in the beginning is the invocation is cut-ups. Um, anyone that knows me knows that I'm obsessed with cut-ups and collages, um, but I think they're a really great way that anyone can access their creativity. And the reason it's so easy is because you don't even have to have your own writing. You don't have to have your own images. I mean, if you have an artistic or creative practice already, that's fantastic. Make time for that and do that. Um, I also always like to emphasize that there are so many more creative activities that people don't think about necessarily as creative. People think about, you know, art as the fine arts, you know, painting, drawing, but there's music, there's gardening, there's cooking, there's woodworking, you know, sculpture, of course. But even, you know, organizing your home, building altars, building beautiful spaces in your house, that's all creative. And, you know, sewing, knitting, there's infinite ways that people create. And I think at our core, we are all essentially creative beings and we all have a drive to create something so don't be limited in what you think of creativity and creation as um, 
everybody has some way they like to create. Everybody has something they like to do um, along those lines. And so just do it, make time for it. And if you don't already have a creative practice or you want to integrate something new, that's really easy and fun to do. And for me, totally life altering. Uh, you can work with cut-ups. So basically what you can do is take any magazine, anything with writing, newspaper, magazine, your own writing, anything you have laying around that's near you and just literally cut it up, cut out the words. You can cut out lines of text. You could just take a page and just cut it into four quarters. You could cut out individual words if you want to. Any way you feel like cutting it up, you just cut up the text and you put it in a box. And I actually have, and you can do this with images too, with like magazines. Take a magazine and cut out pictures that you like from the magazine. And I personally have a box, well, several boxes actually, <laughs> of images that I have already cut out um, from magazines. And I have them here in a box that I always have near me. And then I also have um, a box full of texts. Uh, that I've cut out. And since I write myself, um, I've, I've actually wrote a book on this that just came out um, in November, actually, um, called Scansion in Psychoanalysis and Art. The scansion is a psychoanalytic term that means the cut. It's about cutting and about kind of disrupting narratives um, in order to allow for like a new narrative to come out or allow space for your unconscious to come out and creativity to come out because we're also kind of focused on these narratives that we've either inherited from our families, these stories we've inherited from our society, from history. And I feel like right now is a time where we're kind of disrupting all of those old ingrained narratives and realizing that they're old ingrained narratives and then are not really serving us so well anymore, these old stories. And they're not really accurate either a lot of the time. They're just kind of stories that have been told to us um, and trying to figure out, you know, what do we really believe happened here? What do we really believe about ourselves? And how do we want to think about ourselves differently and invent ourselves in new ways? I feel like this time has been a time for that kind of invention and for taking apart and parsing apart these narratives and throwing out what we don't feel is useful anymore so that we can rebuild together in a new way that's more generative, more productive, more inclusive, more diverse and like inclusive of everybody and everybody's points of views. So that kind of all is manifested in this idea of the cut up actually, because in here, like I have this box of cut up material. It's got pieces from magazines. It's got pieces of my own writing. It's got psychoanalysts. This is like Freud, Melanie Klein, Jung, Lacan, I have everybody in here, um, different books that I've read. Sometimes when my husband and I moved together in together a few years ago, um, we had some of the same books, not a surprise. Um, so what I did with some of the doubles of the books that we had was I cut them up and put them here with my cut-ups. So I've got tons and tons of cut-ups here. And what I like to do is just randomly pull images and pull texts and put them together um, and then see kind of what they say, what the cut-ups say once they've been uh, placed together. So in that way, it's just kind of really 
the physical manifestation of what I was talking about, this idea of you have all these different voices and you mix them all together and they can put themselves together. You can put them together in new ways and see what they say as this kind of new collective of ideas. And something that is a great practice that actually mixes this kind of creative cut-up practice with the dream analysis um, is something that I try to do still almost every day, but there was a six-month period, I guess it was around 2015, where I got really obsessed with this idea. And I was very vigilant about waking up every morning. And the first thing I did was write down my dreams and then I would pull some cut-ups from my cut-up box that I kept with me right next to my bed. <laughs> and I would make a cut-up poem to go along with my dream every day. And that six-month period, I mean, I met my husband at that time. Like, so much of my life changed um, while I was doing that. So I find it not just to be a creative, generative practice, but a really magical practice that... Um, really um, can manifest things in your life, basically. And I even have my journal that I read from in the beginning, but I have examples of like times I've written and then made cut-ups. And like this one, for example, is a cut-up I made using a photograph of Caitlin and I, and uh, that's Caitlin Foisy and me, and then some cut-up poetry here in my journal. Um, my husband bought me a printer. They have like these little printers that you can get called selfies. <laughs> and you can print out photos from your phone directly in your printer at home. So I've been doing that I, to make my cutups a little bit more personalized. I have pictures that I cut from magazines and books, but I also print out my own photos and I integrate pictures of myself or friends or artists that I like into my collages and cutups as well. So that's something that anybody can do. And that's kind of this creative space where you are taking the narrative and mixing it up and kind of making it a little bit more surreal and dreamlike. And that's a way to kind of merge the uh, conscious mind and the kind of rational ego with the unconscious and the irrational a little bit. Cut it up, mix it up, change the narrative a bit. Um, and just to give you a little bit of history about the cut-ups, so that you know kind of where they came from. Um, there was in the Dada movement in the 19-teens and 20s, there was a Romanian poet named Tristan Zara. And he's actually the first one that we know of that did the cut-up method. He called them accidental poems. And he basically cut out words from a paper, a newspaper, and cut out each word individually and put them all in a hat. And he would actually perform them live. He would pull out the words from the hat one by one and read them, and that would make a poem. And he actually wrote a little piece about how to make a cut-up poem, um, which I will read to you so you can hear what he originally said. And this is from 1920. It's called, To Make a Dadaist Poem. Take a newspaper, take some scissors, choose from this paper an article the length you want to make your poem. Cut out the article. Next, carefully cut out each of the words that makes up this article and put them all in a bag. Shake gently. Next, take out 
each cutting one after the other. Copy conscientiously in the order in which they left the bag. The poem will resemble you. And there you are, an infinitely original author of charming sensibility, even though unappreciated by the vulgar hand. And I love this piece because he shows how this is the experience of making these poems. Even though you're just taking a random newspaper that's sitting around in your house, somehow when you cut it up and rearrange it randomly and pull out the pieces, when you read the poem, it seems to have some sort of meaning. And that's what I was talking about before with like synchronicities um, and communication. And however you want to think about the communication, whether you want to think it's like a higher being communicated with you or whether it's your own unconscious communicating with you or the universe or nature or the soul of the universe or Godhead or consciousness or the collective unconscious, any way you want to think about it. Um, this so, sort of communication comes through the cut up poems when you cut up language in this way and re rearrange it. And it's very uncanny and I can't explain it. I don't know anyone who's explained it, but it just happens. And the only way to really understand it is to kind of see for yourself what happens. So I encourage everyone to do these cut ups because the next kind of pair of people who did a lot of work with cut ups was William Burroughs and Brian Geisen. Um, when Brian Geisen kind of rediscovered this method of Tristan Tsar's when he was in the Beat Hotel in the late 1950s. And whenever you see like YouTube videos of them giving talks, especially Burroughs gave a lot of talks and interviews, he's always telling everyone, go cut it up, try it for yourself. Anyone can do this. Um, and usually the audience is just like, oh, yeah, that's really interesting. That's a really cool method. But I'm not sure that everyone is going home and trying it. So that's what Caitlin and I like to tell people. Like, you can do this. It's very easy. It's really interesting to see what happens. So try it yourself. It's really, really fun. And one of the things that I'll also show you is this book that they did together, Brian Geisen and William Burroughs, called The Third Mind. And that was also reflected in the piece that I read in the beginning is that what they said was that when two people work together in this sort of creative way, they said no two minds come together without creating this sort of third mind, a third being. And that they would say that that kind of third mind of the two minds coming together kind of brings on a life of its own. And Caitlin and I have found that in our work. And um, one of the things that they wrote in this book that I just love so much is just their introduction. When they have the introduction for this book, they say, this book is dedicated to and for our collaborators at all times, third minds everywhere. And I love this idea because it shows that this work carries on. It's not just in their own lives and their own work together, but that it works across distance, works with other people's minds, maybe that are living at the same time, but people that they haven't even ever met, maybe people that won't even be born till after they're gone. Um, like this book came out in 1978, The Third Mind. I was born in 77 and Caitlin was born in 79. So we were just being born when they were writing this book. And then we became kind of third mind collaborators because we cut up their writing and their work a lot and integrate it with our own work. 
And then other people might cut up our writing or our work and integrating their work in the future. So this kind of thing has longevity and it cuts across time and space and culture and even across the boundaries of kind of life and death. And I think that's a really interesting way of thinking about it um, and really creative and beautiful as well. And the last thing I'm going to show you guys is my own book of cut-up poetry. This book came out originally in 2016, um, but uh, it was just republished this year also in 2020 called Switching Mirrors. And it's a whole book of poetry that I made using this kind of cut-up method. And this book is really specific. I'm working on a second book of cut-up poetry now. But this work is very specific in that I was like a cut-up purist when I made it. <laughs> I just didn't want to move a word. Um, so all of the poems in this book are actually exactly how the cut-up pieces were pulled from the cut-up box when I pulled them and put them together, exactly the way Tristan Zara described. I pulled out the words or the phrases one by one, uh, and I copied them down. And the only word I changed in this whole book I did change one, is that there was one poem that mentioned a sofa, and I changed the word sofa to couch. And I did that because I'm a psychoanalyst, and we have people lay on the couch when they are doing their talk therapy process. Um, so for me, the symbol of the couch had multiple meanings that were very powerful, um, besides just having it been a sofa. So I changed sofa to couch, and that's the only change I made in this whole book. And so to conclude uh, this really fun talk, I hope you've enjoyed it. I'm going to read a random poem from my book, Switching Mirrors, and then that will end our session. Thank you so much for having me, everyone. Oh, perfect poem. This poem that I opened to is called Eternal Thanks. <laughs> so that'll be the one that I'll read. eternal thanks of the human proponents of been eternal thanks and make a tree of your own this is impossible but the best possible way what has already been the air with one just for once in New York City this spring and antiquity. Psychoanalysis, that dandy and true lover of thee, of becoming and body's mysteries and power. My time knew their souls had to. The right side is thee. See, in between there, originator of Dada, painting, control of, it will fall soon, the caregiver of the unconscious. There's worse ways to die, right? No purpose associated, right? a worn out 
Stone Walls 2, Black Star, A Film Star, Dead, Print, We Deplete to the Sky. We tend to see it and go for it widely, the highfalutin between shamanism is there. Two, enough in this day. In the sexual relation, he and I realize the confrontation of Picabia in thee. I'll weep, she replied, and thank you. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a talk I gave called Creativity, Dreams, and the Unconscious for Aquarius Rising Reimagined, which happened December of 2020. For more about this event and its hosts, you can visit episode 120 of Rendering Unconscious podcast, an interview I did with Shireen Vismaya. You can also check out my recent interview with Carl Abrahamson on his book, Source Magic. That's Rendering Unconscious episode 241. We talk a bit more about our Magic Monday book there as well. Thank you to Carl Abrahamson for providing the intro and outro music to Rendering Unconscious podcast. And now the song, Unconscious Sexuality, a collaboration I did with Carl Abrahamson. This is an original mix. It's never been released. And these are some of the kinds of things that we release usually exclusively on our Patreon. Our Magic Monday posts that we post every Monday are also exclusive content for our Patreon. Join us at patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl for photos, behind the scenes, works in progress, unreleased tracks, writing, and more. Enjoy. Identity ego is first formed during the 
child experiences herself and the mirror. The mirror image appears. Sexuality is a force of nature that yourself be possessed by. In New York City, currently representing via our bodies, considered object. Geisen and Burroughs showed the cutting up of language creates the space for something slowly, third being, embodies countless numbers. Polymorphous perversity, transsexual. Androgyny is divine, a being possessed, repossessed. As these sites are relaxation, we are simply sexual, repression, apparent, Vanessa Sinclair. Psychoanalysis, the pores of the skin, we learn about as these are the penetrated and expelled, constricted to nor constructed, and biology are limited, how anymore, only contained, as self, every self, it is the object, dropped, not heterosexual, homosexual, sexuality is not in the realm, by either, the unconscious, sexuality.